Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, media trainer and editor of veganbusinessmedia.com, the multimedia blog providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. In this episode, I interview Ella Nemkova, founder of The Regal Vegan, which produces vegan gourmet spreads, including the renowned foie gras, basilicotta and superfood pesto. This is another audio interview that I did for my book, Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Ella's products are in the gourmet premium range, and she's a great example of a small business owner coming up with a unique product and managing to raise the company's profile through that, which allowed her to then add new products and continue to grow. In this interview, Ella talks about why it's important to use words and images that reflect your brand rather than detract from it, and how she does that with The Regal Vegan. How being across many different marketing platforms help the company grow. How to get comfortable with selling, (laughs) that's an important one for vegan business owners, and much more. Here's the interview with Ella Nemkova of The Regal Vegan. Your why? Um, what's your vision? Your driver? Why, why have you set up this business? What drives you to do it? Well, the main thing for me was, you know, for people that are making either dietary transitions, aka from, you know, being omnivorous to vegetarian or vegan, or for people who are, you know, making decisions for health reasons. You know, for both of those groups of people, I felt like there was there wasn't enough awesome decadent food. You know, I felt like there's plenty of stuff that's like, okay, it's a burger, or okay, it's um, you know, it's a macaroon, or you know, there was stuff, but there was nothing that was really, you know, naughty. (laughs) Something that was really creamy and decadent, and just felt like you were having a treat, but was in fact you know, a very healthy uh, vegan version. Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, I just feel like it was, there was nothing, there was nothing that made people feel that they were being treated. Everything was just like, great, it's, you know, it's chicken or it's a tuna sandwich, you know, and then you're dealing with a lot of compromise. I felt like that. I wanted to make stuff that wasn't a compromise. It just is what it is. Right, right. Sure, that's fantastic. So I guess you're you're kind of doing vegan education through making um, um, awesome decadent food. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people, you know, they'll try our stuff and they'll say, "Oh gosh, you know, you know, I have somebody who's vegan," or they'll say, "Yeah, there's there's." This is really good. I can't believe it's vegan. Or what is vegan? Yeah, it really opens up a forum. Absolutely, that's brilliant. Um, in this space, and I don't know if this is a challenge for you. Some of the other business owners that I've interviewed have, have brought it out that when you're working, when you're creating products like this um, that are vegan, and particularly if they're organic or sustainable as well, is that it can be more expensive to make them um, because um, you know vegan food isn't subsidised. Um, so I'm just curious how you deal with the challenge, if it is a challenge, to stay competitive and attract customers. Well, our products are definitely are definitely in the premium arena. And, you know, I made that decision very early on. I thought, you know, there's two ways to go. You can make something cheap and junky that everybody could have, or you could go a little premium. And people that are really seeking, you know, an elevated taste experience within these parameters, you know, they'll go for it. And it's true. You know, people that want something that's higher level will... We'll pay for it. You know, our stuff is not organic because even though we're not using organic ingredients, the ingredients these are really, they're really nice and they're also very nutrient dense. You know, right. we use nuts in all of our ingredients. So, you know, walnuts, cashews, and we use good olive oil and nutritional yeast and, you know, 
everything we use is so carefully sourced that, you know, to make it organic would be, then it would be really cost prohibitive. Right, got it. So you mentioned that you're already kind of in that kind of, um, you know, that higher end um, market. So do you use that in your, like, do you use that as a kind of selling point to explain to customers, you know, why the product is a little bit more expensive? Do you actually, like, educate them and let them know that so that they're more inclined to go, oh, okay, I get it now? Yeah, I mean, I think we project that sort of, we project that sort of higher end image with, our marketing materials, and when we do in-person demos, we have an opportunity to talk about really the quality of the ingredients, and we do a market on the weekends called Smorgasburg, and there we really do also get a chance to talk about, you know, what we make and why it's special. Right, got it, cool, excellent, excellent. Um, In terms of... um, Oh, sorry, it's just a strange noise there. Um, Not with my phone ringing. Oh, is it? (laughs) In terms of um, business owners nowadays, um, some business owners find that there's kind of more demands on our time. So not only have we got to be working in our business and on our business and, you know, we've got all the administration, we've now got social media accounts uh, thrown into the mix and it can be a bit, um, it can feel a bit overwhelming at times. I'm curious, how do you cope with that and what advice would you give to others in regards to overwhelm? particularly those that are starting out on their vegan business journey? Mm, good question. There's a, I mean, there's a definitely an art to creating balance in your life. I think in the beginning, I mean, I worked around the clock. I worked all the time. But because what I was doing was so important to me and I felt like I was providing such a service, it felt really good. And so doing everything or everything that I could, you know, was awesome. What I what I would suggest, you know, other than just being really clear about your mission and really knowing why you're starting anything, why you're doing it, is to make sure you have a support network, whether it's like a um, family or friends or a business networking group or small business administration, or a mentor, you know, it's very important to have somebody rooting for you because those people will be the ones who remind you that you don't have to be good at everything. You know, I'm not an accountant. I might be able to do some of my, you know, some of the data entry for my books, but I'm not an accountant. I never will be. You don't have to become an accountant. You have to be able to figure out what you're good at do that and hire people to do the things that you're not good at. Mm, mm, right. And that's interesting. I suppose that follows on to, um, I'm curious, you said in the beginning you were kind of working uh, all those hours. So I'm curious, as you've gone on, um, how important is it and how much time do you spend actually working more on your business rather than directly in it? So I'm talking about things like taking a big picture approach, strategizing, brainstorming new ideas to grow the business. I mean, I guess to that end, I would say that I'm pretty much working all the time in that capacity because those kinds of thoughts, you know, they come, I mean, they come when you're doing higher level stuff. So, you know, when you're at a trade show, when you're at a trade show networking and, you know, observing and seeing how the other people do it, it really does inspire you and help you to do more your own do more of your own growth. But I think there are definitely some business classes that help you articulate or kind of separate your time into making sure that you dedicate time to new product development and strategy and business growth. It's not something in the beginning you are doing that. In the beginning you're doing it naturally. You know, it's just happening. You're like, oh, we'll do this, we'll do this, we'll, we'll go about it this way. We'll do these products. We'll put this kind of label on it. You're doing it the whole time. And then once you kind of level out a little bit, um, I think then you do need to take some more like very conscientious efforts to continue to building that. 
Right. Instead of getting sucked in and and just kind of doing that, getting on like almost like the treading water and and you know fulfilling orders and the creation, which I think sometimes business owners can do. They start out with that vision, and then they get caught up in the day to day and don't necessarily take that time to to do that big picture stuff to to grow. I mean, I suffer from that. I suffer from that now as well. You know, I don't always get to you know spend as much time on big picture stuff but you know the growth process to where where you can really be a big picture ideator it takes time to get there you know but it's kind of like you you have to you don't always have the time but you have to really figure out your priorities and if your priorities are grow the business or if your priorities are get into more stores um more specifically then you need to work on your priorities. And if five years down the line is your immediate priority, you know, I think you need to be where you are. Like it's kind of existential in that way, or like Zen, like, you know, you're doing the work, be the work. I think it's also really, really important to enjoy the least enjoyable parts of your business. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes I get really worked up and I'm you know, in the beginning I would get really kind of almost, you know, like discouraged that I was spending so much time doing, you know, a lot of it's manual labor. (laughs) You know, a lot of it's grunt work and you don't want to be doing it. And at some point I had to kind of reframe that and say, well, you know, I have the luxury of deciding what my business is, what my brand is becoming. I have the luxury of figuring out you know, deciding what my schedule is going to be like and answering to nobody except my customers. And that's a real luxury in and of itself. And sometimes it, the cost of that luxury is grunt work, menial labor, and doing all those other things. So I think it's really important to, you know, have a lot of respect and enjoy all of the challenging parts of growing a business because that's the work, you know, that's, you know, it's not all like, oh, we're going to sit around and brainstorm a logo. You know, it gets the fun part. Yeah. You know, doing the grunt work and figuring out how to get out of it. Yeah, that's what you're actually paying. Got it. I like that. I like what you said about that and, and choosing to enjoy it. I think that's the the parts that you don't naturally enjoy. I think that's a really, really good point. Really great, great advice. Thank you for that. And what would you say some of, were some of the key challenges when you first started up the business, um, and how did you uh, overcome those? Well, I think the key challenges were being able to do, you know, just what we talked about, like being able to do everything. You have to make the product, or you know, you have to build your business. You have to grow your business. You have to get customers, and you have to have you know a customer service plan in place. What happens when things go wrong? How do you get more business? You know, you've got to hit the pavement and get those accounts. And it's hard to hit the pavement and get the accounts, especially if you're very close to the product, because I think you deal with a lot of rejection when you're out there. You know, maybe, maybe not, but I, you know, I think a lot of people start out and stores are like, you know, that's great. I'm sure your chocolate's delicious, but we haven't, we don't have any room. Bye. And you have to be able to wake up in the morning and continue to create what you thought, what you set out to create, even if you're not getting the huge, like millionaire overnight results that you dreamed about. Right, right. That's a really good point. Really good point. In terms of then getting people to stop, I guess, and take notice of your business and your products, you know, in a world that's kind of full of, you know, lots of notifications, messages, offers, flashy lights, lots of stuff going on. How do you go about um, kind of growing your profile or building your profile without uh, feeling like that you're harassing people or potential clients? Well, I think the key there is to not focus all of your marketing efforts in one in one modality. So as to say, like, if you're spending, you know, if you're sending out, you know, three articles every week and you're doing your social media plan three times a day and you're tweeting and Facebooking and you're doing a Tumblr page and you're working on your website, that's a full-time job. 
Mm. You know, but I think if you're, you know, when people, the way people really respond is not that they got notified 15 times. The way they respond is they saw out of the corner of their eye a notification. They overheard someone talking about you. They saw your name pop up somewhere on a poster that you were sponsoring something. You know, they went to an event and you were there. That's when people start to take notice of you when they've heard you across five different touch points. So I think the way to get out there is to get out there. I mean, do events, do sponsorships, you know, do in-store demos, um, do something amazing, donate your money, you know, get publicity, uh, join forces with somebody, get into a new account, write letters. I mean, do everything you can so that you're on people's radar and not just one way. Right, right. When they do hear you in that way, then they really listen because you've become a celebrity to them. They've heard about you five times. <laughs> I wonder if it's that some people are a bit afraid of that because they're, they're kind of more afraid that they might be harassed, like people, they might feel like they're harassing people by being out there and constantly being out there. Whereas it's, as you're saying, it's something that we have to do and it's maybe a hurdle, a mental hurdle that, that we have to get over. Well, it is and it comes from, it comes from a, a lack of authenticity or the perceived notion of lack of authenticity, like all of us who create for a living, on some level, we think we're frauds. You know, we think we're faking it because we made it up, forgetting that us being being creatives and actually making stuff up is what makes us, you know, what gives us the capacity to become business owners, to become inventors, to become brands, to become products, to become entrepreneurs. It's that exact, you know, that courage to get out there and put something into the world that didn't exist before. And to do that, you, to, to be able to sell it, you have to change and reframe, A, your concept of what selling is. Reframe your concept of why, you know, what it means. I'm putting out, I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you, I'm inviting you, I'm sending you messages, sending you messages. If you're sending your message to the wrong people, yeah, you will annoy them. Yeah, you are being pushy. Yeah, you are barking up the wrong tree. But once you really start to identify who your target market is, and once you're clear about what you've developed and what benefits it offers, then you're not selling. What you're doing is creating ease and finding solutions for people for the problems in their life. So if you've found the right target and you really are solving a problem, they welcome you. Exactly. They welcome you because they've been looking for what you have to offer. So that's why I say you have to get really clear about who your market is and be how you're solving their problems. If I told you that what I have for you is going to solve a lot of your problems, create a lot of joy for you, and give you more time, would you want to listen? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no. Perfect. Um, do you have staff working? Like, uh, um, Do you have staff, Ella, or is it mainly just you and your business? I have staff. I have people that function in different different capacities and different yeah play different roles. Some people play play more than one role, and you know it was really about finding the things where a there were either there were positions that I could train someone to do what I used to do, or b there were positions that I could absolutely no longer do anything myself at all and needed somebody who was an expert to take over that role. Right. So I was going to ask you how you go about finding and keeping experienced and motivated staff because I know that seems to be an issue that crops up is that, you know, in businesses and particularly in food businesses, um, that it has quite a high turnover of staff. So I'm curious um, how you go about finding and keeping experienced, motivated staff. Well, I mean, when you said, like, what's your why? I mean, I think it comes back to what's your why. And if you motivate people based on just you know, here's money for in exchange for your time doing whatever, then they can exchange their time for money anywhere. But if you offer people, you know, hey, you're part of this group that's solving problems for people. You're part of this, like, higher mission. You're part of, you know, you're, you're working on a higher ground. Then it's not just work. Then it's fulfilling. You know, some people really get joy out of helping somebody grow a business. So, like, you know, why are there mentors? Because people want to be part of something that's growing. 
people want to watch a child grow up. You know, so allowing people in, sharing responsibility, and really, you know, rewarding people. You know, in terms of kitchen staff, yeah, kitchen's going to be turnover. If you find one or two good employees, hang on to them for dear life. Right. You know, human resources is really hard, and I think more than that, more than that is when people are new entrepreneurs, they're not, they're not designed, they're not, they haven't been endowed with management skills unless they can come from a management background. Right. But definitely right out of college or let's say like, you know, grad school, you go, you start a business, you have a big dream, you finally have some staff, but all you know is that you've worked tirelessly and you work 80 hours a week and you're a slave to your business and you cannot have those expectations of people. So managing people to meet your expectations, to accomplish goals, it's a whole different skill set. And I think it's a very important skill to learn if you're going to become an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in terms of, um, I guess, competition, I mean, you seem to have a, a unique product, um, but obviously nowadays, you know, there are more options available now, particularly um, in the vegan food um, arena. So I'm curious, how do you go about um, standing out within the kind of vegan, against the kind of other vegan business products? Well, I mean, I'm me. So I can only create, you know, I'm not going to go out and make hummus when there's like 50 hummuses on the market. I'm going to create something that's very unique to my experience. And so that's one of the things that I think is great about entrepreneurs. And I'd like to encourage people that are entrepreneurs is, you know, when you're, when you're developing things that are just very much a reflection of you, where you are and, if you're solving a problem for yourself, chances are other people have that problem too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had a few people say that. It's very, very true. On that topic of um, competition, a lot of the marketing gurus now are saying that nowadays businesses should actually stop thinking about having competitors and instead um, consider them and embrace them as collaborators and maybe do JVs, joint ventures with them. What are your thoughts on that? And have you done any kind of such partnerships? Um, well, you know, I think that the kind of people that we partner with naturally are chip, um, like chips, crackers, and things like that, because what does a chip need? Something to put on it. So, uh, I mean, that's more of a, a very strategic partnership. But in terms of competition, I mean, I wouldn't say specifically, you know, don't pay attention to your, I mean, you definitely have to be aware of your competition, and I think you need to watch how they're marketing, what they're saying, what their message is, and also observe how it's resonating with people. But if you do have direct competition, I say, well, well that's great because that's a real compliment. Number one, it shows some some faith in the fact that what you've created, um, that there's actually a market for it. You know, if there's nothing like your product out on the market, it could be because no one's invented it or it could be because nobody wants it. It could be because there isn't a great need for it. So competition is a very good thing to study just to see what the market what the market requires, what the market demands, how the market ebbs and flows. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that at Smorgasburg, which is an all-food market, like outdoor hipster food market in Brooklyn, you know, I was the first vegan food booth that they have. Yeah, I started a few years ago. People would say, oh, you're such a pioneer. As if being a pioneer, you know, has some street value. But um, in the beginning, it was quite hard. You know, vegans weren't coming because there were no vegan booths. And And then there was one vegan booth. And then slowly but surely... You know, there was another vegan booth, mm-hmm. and then we started to grow. And you know, there was it was still the quantity of vegans, the non-vegans in this food market was you know, number one, directly proportional, I think, to how many vegans are on the market, aka much lower. 
And so what we did is, just like you said, we actually did embrace each other. I mean, we were all selling vegan food to a limited market. And we did start to embrace, I mean, listen, we're all friends also, you know, in that particular group. And so we supported each other. We tweeted and, you know, supported each other through multiple like media campaigns. Like, hey, we're all here. There's four vegan booths now. There's five vegan booths. There's, you know, we're growing and we need you to come. And the people came because there was something to come to. Because really once again, we were solving their problems. What cool things can we do in a day where there's going to be tons of vegan food for us? That's going to be hip and cool and delicious and blah, blah, blah. So it's not just about banding together. It's, again, it comes back to what's the benefit for people. And so, yeah, I think on some level, I think embracing is good. And I think at another level, it's good to have your your competition at a at a healthy distance. Got Observe, it. watch, learn. I mean, I don't think you need to, you know, I think being too close can also be, uh, you know, it can also compromise your individuality or creativity and kind of campaigns you do. When you see people doing too much of the same stuff, and especially like we have in New York or we have in the U.S., like, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, KFC, all in one location. Right. But they all lose their individuality that they're marketing themselves. You know, that they're kind of the same. Different, but the same. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Just want to talk to you a little bit about mindset because just from our conversation now, I, I'm really getting the impression that you've got, uh, you've obviously done a lot of um, personal development work. You seem very, um, you know, tuned in to, uh, you know, the kind of mindset that, that's required to, to be entrepreneurial and run your own business. So, and I know a lot of business owners say that running and owning their business is the fastest and most effective form of personal development because it forces you to grow. Um, I'm curious, what would you say, what are the qualities do you believe are essential to being able to stay the course? And, and run a success, run and grow a successful vegan business. I don't think it's specific to vegan. I think running any business, uh, it requires you to have kind of the desire to persevere despite your ego. I mean, you have to be able to. I mean, you kind of have to be a little bit of a masochist or, you know, an athlete on some level because it's, it can be really painful to fall off the horse. Um, you have to keep, you have to be able to keep getting up every time you're knocked down like a boxer. If you don't get up, the game's over. Right. Right. So quite a high level of resilience and persistence. Yeah. Yeah. What specific steps um, uh, do you take, Ella, or strategies or techniques have you used and do you continue to use to ensure that you have got this strong mental and emotional well-being as a business owner? So I guess I'm thinking in terms of anything like meditation, coaching, self-help courses, reading, uh, you know, business or personal development books, etc. Because you sound like you've done a lot of personal development work on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Did you see me in the self-help section of Barnes & Noble? <laughs> no, no, I can just tell by just the language that you're using. I can, I'm really kind of tuning into it and you just come across as, yeah, someone who's done a lot of that that work. Um, well, you know, I, I, I'd i say I definitely grew into this role. I was not a I mean, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. I was always very autonomous, maybe almost an anarchist in the context of being in an office. I worked in corporate America for years. It was not easy for me to fall in line. Um, so in that sense, it was easy for me you know, to work for myself. But the parts that I mentioned, like learning how to be a leader, um, learning how to persevere, learning how to endure, having faith, for me, that came from a lot of different sources. Yeah, I definitely did my, my share of, you know, I did my Franklin Covey and learning how to be more productive with my time. I read a ton of books. I took business classes. I really learned. I mean, like I went, I call, I went, like consider um, that I went to Regal Vegan University. Um, <laughs> And I I learned so many facets. I never thought I would have to learn about, you know, 
cardboard box weights and how that was relevant to my life. You know, the learning curve is so intense. It's the sharpest learning curve of my life. Um, and I'd say, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely had to, had to practice, have to practice meditation. I definitely had to learn the importance of self-care. I think there was a lot of time when I was working round the, round the clock, round the clock, round the clock and exhausting myself and not having any fun and really, I mean, there's no doubt about it, starting a business, starting anything, writing a book, having a child, um, starting a business, they all require a lot of no. And that's learning to say no to everything that you might want to do that isn't in line with your vision. So, I mean, I'd say, I mean, there's so much great help out there. Tony Robbins... I mean, it might it might sound a little bit cliche or cheesy, but he really, I mean, there's some, some advice that I heard from him that always resonated with me. And that is when, you know, when you start a business, you have to learn to deal with disappointment. It's not that it will never happen. It's that it's going to constantly happen. It's not about when, it's not about if something is going to go wrong. It's about when something's going to go wrong and how you rise to that challenge. And interestingly enough, that sentiment is echoed, you know, through so many different like spiritual modalities and all kinds of self-help and uh, self-development modalities. And what they're actually saying is, you know, get back up. So all that advice, you know, whatever, whatever you take, I say take something like allow somebody to help soften, soften the parts of you that work too hard and empower the part of you that is afraid to work too hard. Mm. Oh, awesome. I know you kind of touched on this throughout as we've been talking. What would you say in summary have been the key lessons that you've learned through running your own business, whether that's personal or professional or both? Um, get support, you know, whether it's um, financial support, emotional support, partner support, get support. I mean, it's a with any with any luck you don't go out you know you don't run out of steam in your first year and you have a, at least a few years of learning how to run a business. There can be really dark days. Make sure you you have an exit strategy for those specific days. Um, I'd say also stay inspired. It's really important to meet other people. It's really, really, really important to remember why you started your business. Keep your mission clear. And if you're not empowered by your mission, evolve your mission, change it so that every time you say it or every time you read it, you say, oh, yeah, this is important and I'm going to keep doing this. And I'd say third, um, learn, if you don't already, learn to love people. And get to know them. Get to know people that are your that are your equals, your colleagues, that are your employees, that are your customers, that are your business to business customers, that are your direct customers, um, that are leaders in your field, that are experts, that are you know other CEOs, other entrepreneurs. Get to know people and really develop a curiosity for the human condition, because once you learn to satisfy the needs of the people in your circles i think then you really start to get a sense of success right it's really great advice really great advice thank you um so what is it have you i'm just curious have you ever actually hired expert help to come in to your business and i'm talking in terms of um, business coaches or marketing professionals pr professionals i've had different you know i've had consultants you know short-term consultants throughout time to kind of check in. Um, you know, I have, I have a marketing background. The marketing to me comes a little bit easier. I certainly don't have, you know, I should hire myself full time to do my marketing, <laughs> but I can't, I'm busy. Um, yeah, I think it's great to have, to have support and help throughout your, you know, from, from experts, consultants, as many as you can. I mean, as many as you can afford. And definitely I say, I would say, 
pick, you know, pick the area where you are least skilled and get some support there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important to, again, identify the things that you're good at and identify the things that you're not good at and then fill those holes. Be it with experts or full-time staff or part-time staff. But expecting yourself to do, to, to know how to do everything is, is a losing proposition. Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, for those people who are aspiring to, to own their own business, in this case a vegan business, what in your opinion, I'm particularly interested, as you mentioned you come from corporate America, what in your opinion are the key things that they need to take into account before making that jump from employment to self-employed? Um, well, they need to have some sort of loose plan a.k.a. how they'll support themselves because I think as entrepreneurs we're, we're usually a little ambitious as to when we'll start to, you know, turn a profit. Um, yes. I think it's really important to kind of play a long game versus a short game, you know, in terms of not making, not making like short-term decisions, but really going for looking into the future. So starting a business, you really want to think, how am I going to support myself? You know, do I have a nest egg? Do I have, you know, family um, to keep me going? Am I taking out loans? Do I have investors? How, how are you doing it? Or, or do you move back in with your folks, live for free in the basement? You know, I, that's a great idea. If you can reduce your expenses, it takes a lot of the pressure off. Um, and I would say also like educate yourself, talk to everybody who will give you an ear, um, and ask serious questions. And I think also, you know, when I started, I wasn't sure if I was going into product business or if I was going to open a restaurant or if I was going to do a delivery business or if I was going to have a wellness center. I mean, I had so many ideas of what I wanted to do. And the only way I was able to fine tune my business direction was to talk to a lot of people and figure. And also when you talk to those people, have in your head an idea of what kind of life you want to lead. What kind of connection do you want to have to yourself, to your family, to your freedom, Is freedom at all important to you. You know, consultants I think can kind of make their own schedules, but you know, mothers cannot. Mothers are pretty much, especially in the first few years, and I'm not a mom, but I hear this from mom so much, you're a slave. You're a slave yeah. to that kid for the first, you know, for the, and the same thing with your business. You're a slave to it. You have to figure out to what extent you're willing to sacrifice because there's going to be so much of it. I think you need to also decide, like, what kind of life you want ultimately. Like, how big do you want to get? you want just a little shop? Do you want just a little business or do you want to take over the world? One requires a little more work than the other, so get really clear on that. Mm, nice. Those are really, I think they're really, really valuable questions. I think maybe not not many people, not so many people necessarily ask those. They maybe have this glamorous idea about, you know, oh, it's going to be easier. I can't wait to leave my job that I'm a slave to, and they don't kind of realise some of these these things. So I think that's that's really great, really great advice. Um, just on marketing and branding, in terms of the word, uh, using the use of the word vegan in um, your marketing materials, so on your website, etc., and the prominence of the word, there's two schools of thought, and you'll probably obviously understand this as a marketer. One is that it's limiting because it's scary, people are scared of the word and they'll run away, or it's clever niche marketing. So I'm curious what your thoughts on, on that is, um, and perhaps say something about your own choice of how you use the word in your marketing and why. Um, it's an interesting question. Um, when I coined Regal Vegan, um, you know, I was coming from a marketing background and being clever and writing a pithy line or something that sounded great uh, was was important to me. And I, at that time, vegan was never vegan was never scary to me. I just thought, like, wow, what a what a fountain of youth! Like, what an amazing 
practice. I can't believe more people don't know about this. I can't believe this isn't a bigger idea. Um, and I felt, you know, the word felt very different to me than I think it does to um, a lot of people. And I think I kind of made some assumptions that may or may not have been accurate about what people's perception of vegan is. Um, looking backward, I'm not sure that I would put vegan in the title. Um, and the reason why is exactly like you said, it is really scary. It's very polarizing. And I think personally, I think vegans give themselves a bad name. Um, I think vegan also, yes, niche is great, but when there's a vegan product, vegans find out about it. Nice. You know, you kind of can't keep it. You kind of can't keep good vegan ice cream from vegans or good <laughs> vegan anything from vegans. They will find it. They will eat it. They will talk about you because vegans are, the vegan market is very loyal. Yeah. And they understand how important it is to support each other. Um, you know, I think a lot of people specifically avoid using the word vegan because they don't want people to think that it doesn't taste good. And this is a perception of veganism that perhaps will be a little bit slower to turn around. But again, I recommend that people play a long game. You know, and I also think that veganism is the future of food. Mm. I don't think that everybody is going to become vegan, but I think over time, once the horrors of factory farming, um, you know, population extinction, oh, you know, species extinction, um, you know, climate change, um, you know, pollution, antibiotics, you know, once the horrors of animal consumption really reaches kind of either critical mass or just reaches a critical mass in education, I think we will just naturally have to become more vegan. I mean, there's going to be in the future fewer ways to have good, clean meat. I can't imagine that the industrial um, farming system is going to evolve so that meat's cleaner. It sounds to me like it's just getting worse. Yeah. And yeah. so people are more and more, I mean, the vegan is rise, vegan is on the rise, vegetarianism is on the rise. Um, yeah, I think over time the word vegan will become less scary. I think it's still significantly scary. However, I think for a lot of people, it also, like seeing vegan on your packaging tells people right away, here's our ethics. Yeah. Yeah. Here's our ethics in five letters. Cool. Yeah. And they speak volumes. They do. They do. Now, Ellie, you've had quite a a reasonable amount of media. Um, So I'm just curious, do you actively use editorial coverage, uh, as in media, as part of your PR strategy and go after it? Or has it kind of come to you? I'm just curious as to the importance of um, going after that, that media coverage for a business. I don't, I don't chase, I don't really chase media. I think the way, the reason we get, you know, the, and I don't know that we necessarily get a lot of media, but I think the reason that we've gotten the media that we've gotten is because, you know, we created something that was somewhat sensational and something that was also very good. So... I mean, I don't know, that would be my number one piece of business advice, like create something unforgettable. And people will want to talk about you because you can't forget about it. Right, right. So it's been something that's come kind of organically, like the media has heard about you and and um, requested interviews from you as opposed to you, say, sending out media releases and pitches on a regular basis. Is that right? It's true. We don't We don't send out a ton of stuff. I'd love to be able, I would love to, dedicate some time to doing more of that. Um, But no, I mean, again, the way to get yourself out there isn't necessarily by just sending press releases and photos. I mean, even people that are journalists live in the world. And if they see you in the world, just like a regular consumer, when when people are reached more than five touch points, where they see your name at an event, you know, they find, they happen to happen across your products and stores, 
you know, then they saw a tweet from you. Like when people start seeing you at Smorgasburg, which is this market that we do, and then they read about you, then, okay, then they start to become interested in you. Then they want, they, they want you to have a press release. Then they'll start to chase you because they're like, okay, what you've developed, you've developed something that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In terms of marketing strategies, what are the the key um, marketing strategies you currently use at the moment and that are successful? Um, I mean, I think the biggest advice I'd give in this to this question is be clear about what kind of business you're building. And again, play a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm about playing a long game and not a short game. Um, establish what your brand voice is early on and never stray from it. You know, if you're a high end brand, you don't suddenly become, you know, cheap. You don't suddenly, you know, you don't suddenly do coupons in the, you know, the, the, you know, the paper or uh, whatever, the marketing, the circular with like free coupons and stuff. I mean, you stay a high-end brand, you associate with high-end events, high-end stores. They don't sell you at the local, you probably don't have bodegas, but you know, we have these like kind of their convenience stores, but they're... I don't know, they're very unique to New York, but um, it's about, I mean, your marketing strategy isn't just the actual, like, advertising and public relations messages you create. Your marketing is in how you show up to a meeting. Your marketing is in what your business card feels like in a person's hand. Your marketing is everything. So... I mean, I recommend people, I mean, like, in that, you know, there's all these like marketing books that teach you like marketing techniques. And I think a very important one is learning how to build your brand architecture, deciding what words always reflect your brand. But always when people say, okay, you know, decadent um, vegan food or like, fancy vegan appetizers, they're going to, Regal Vegan is going to come to their mind because we always portray the stuff that way. When our product is shot, you know, it's not shot ever looking like hummus. Right. <laughs> Got it. Cool. So that was Ellen M. Kova from the Regal Vegan. You can find out more about Ella and the vegan gourmet spreads that the company produces at theregalvegan.com. And you can find that link on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts. Now for our vegan business news roundup. Vegan chef Matthew Kenny has opened a pizza restaurant in New York and it's already getting fantastic reviews, reports Veg News. Zero Zero and Co. features a wood-burning stove and delicious toppings that include cashew cheeses, truffled celeriac, and walnut cream. Oh my gosh, my mouth is watering. As well as the more traditional herbs and vegetables. And a selection of raw dishes is also on offer. New York's Gothamist website recently called the pizzas gorgeous. And they certainly sound it and I can't wait to try them next time I'm in New York. Pizzas have come such a long way in the past 20 years since I went vegan. I remember ordering them from the main pizza chains in the UK with no cheese and they were pretty bland. So I really love it when high profile chefs like Matthew Kenny, who's the owner of several culinary schools and restaurants, including plant food and wine in LA, show people just how delectable vegan food can be. And I'm sure we'll be seeing many more positive reviews of Zero Zero and Co. On the other side of the Atlantic, another vegan cafe is wowing people in Croydon in the UK. The town's first all-vegan cafe, Buttercream Dreams, what a fantastic name that is, was so popular on its first day of opening that it sold out of food. Owner Laura Adderley told the Croydon advertiser she never expected so much enthusiasm and love in the first week of trading. 
And the good news is it's not just vegans who are now already regular customers, but also those with dairy intolerances and other allergies. I'm so pleased to hear this because while vegan eateries are reasonably plentiful in the centre of many cities, the suburbs are often lacking. So it really shows how the vegan market is growing when places like Buttercream Dreams, see I just had to say the name again because I love it so much, open up. Another vegan butcher store is opened. This one is in Berkeley, California. It's called The Butcher's Son and it's owned by brother and sister Peter Ficaris and Christina Stobing, reports Veg News. So vegans are really co-opting this concept of butcher and reclaiming it from its murderous origins. <laughs> the Butcher's Son follows on the heels of Herbivorous, the US's first butcher, vegan butcher shop, which opened in Minneapolis in January, which we've talked about in earlier episodes of Vegan Business Talk. So it looks like a trend that's set to continue. And finally, the UK's Metro newspaper and website, which has a massive readership, ran a piece on the top 10 vegan beers to try in February. Now, the hook for the story was London Beer Week. And what's notable about this from a PR perspective is veganism was a new and different angle to cover this festival. So particularly with regular events such as annual festivals, journalists are desperately looking for unique ways to cover them. So that's something you can use to your advantage. You can pitch ideas to journalists. So to journalists, so say there's a cheese festival coming up and you make vegan cheese. Well, you can suggest an article similar to this one about the top 10 vegan cheeses. And of course, you include your own. You can do the same thing with fashion events. So suggest a top 10 or a top five best vegan shoe brands. And of course, again, you include your own. So the possibilities are endless, but I think you get the gist. Media outlets, particularly mainstream magazines and online media, love these kind of list type articles. And if you can get your product or service included in these lists, it's a fabulous bit of free publicity. So have a think about that. Look at what events are coming up and how you can get your vegan run business some media coverage. And just on that, if you want some more tips on how to get your vegan business featured in the media, I have a webinar in which I share a ton of other strategies. And you can find out more about that at veganbusinessmedia.com and click the link for the webinar. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please consider giving it a review and a rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. I'm Katrina Fox from veganbusinessmedia.com and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode. Bye for now. 